And this Palm Sunday, we're continuing in our series in Hebrews. If you've got your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we, uh, we are in the middle of that chapter. We're picking up in verse 23 is where we'll be, uh, we'll be today. Um, I, I am not one of those people that remember what was said at a high school uh, graduation ceremony, at commencement services. Um, I don't remember what people have said at those, uh, those kind of celebrations. I have spoken at a handful of high school graduations and commencement services, and I don't even remember what I said at those graduation services. Which, uh, but I do remember one graduation service. I do not know why I remember it, because it's from years ago, 1978. I was in the seventh grade in my school, and I was sitting there in the, in the, in the, in the chapel, in the assembly room, and graduation was taking place in all the pomp and circumstance, and school dignitaries were soon to hand out diplomas, uh, and speeches were being made, and for whatever reason, um, a, a talk that was given by a graduating senior on that night stuck in my brain. It just, it just settled in me. Her, uh, her name, the person who gave it was Ellen Sawyer. I have not seen Ellen Sawyer since, and I was not friends with Ellen Sawyer, but uh, her talk just settled in the marrow of my bones. I don't remember the entire talk, but the big idea, the central thought for what she was saying just stuck to me. She began her, her speech that night at graduation by saying this. She said, I hate quitters. I hate quitters. She had me. I was leaning in. Not, not because I had this propensity to quit. I, I, I typically stuck with things. The only thing I could remember quitting uh, in, in elementary school or high school was, uh, was piano lessons, and that was at the strong encouragement of my piano teacher. <laughs> I, I, I tended to stick with things. And, and, but when Ellen said, I hate quitters, for whatever reason, that message, that thought, just, just was Velcroed to me. It stuck to me, and I remembered it. Again, I don't remember all her points. I remember everything she said. But that idea of not wanting to be a quitter, not wanting to disrespect others and let them down, not wanting to be one of those people who start, people who start things but, and don't finish them, I did not want to be a quitter. And that message of I hate quitters has been with me since, 30-some years later. Now, Mom always told me, don't hate anyone unless they're, they're Yankees, but don't, don't hate them. Is John Myers here? Sorry, John. You're a Yankees fan. We love you, John. Just not your Yankees. We, we, we just, we're not saying we hate people, but the idea of giving up or quitting is something that has just, has just it's been with me all these years, that, that message that Ellen uh, gave. And as we're in the book of Hebrews and we're talking about staying with Jesus, Really, what the writer is, is, is attempting to say is, yes, stay with Christ. Stick with him. Stay with him. Don't give up. Don't quit. And he's, he's sending this message not to people who are just, you know, sort of wishy-washy, whamby-pamby Christians who are just like, you know, I can't take it anymore. I'm giving up. These are people that are enduring difficulty, significant suffering. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. I want to throw these verses up on the screen behind you to give you a sense of the difficulty that they are experiencing. It says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. That word terrible, in the original language in which the New Testament was written, it's Greek, it's the word mega, and we, we know that word in English. 
Mega means large or great. Remember when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant large and great, terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. Sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. Now, look at those verses that are up on the screen. Think about what these people are going through. Public ridicule. Not not just a, a private mocking or scorning or scoffing, but public. Meaning they were probably brought into the, into the public square, into the town square. And they were, they were maligned publicly for their association, their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And, 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 and it, it gave birth to not only just more mocking and, and ridicule, it, some of them were beaten for it. And in that day, being beaten with a rod was a, was a form of punishment. These Christ followers were being publicly mocked and scorned and ridiculed. And then they're, they're brought out into the public square and they're beaten with rods. And then some of them are thrown into prison because of their faith in Christ. And the, the church is caring for one another. Uh, some of them, they're visiting each other in prison. And then on top of that, if you were a Christ follower, as we, as we learn from these verses, some lost their possessions. They were taken from them. They, they lost homes. They lost uh, livestock. They, they lost property. They lost jobs. It was taken from them. And when that happened, they accepted it with joy. These are not Christ's followers who are just sort of wimpy. These are people who began a journey with Jesus and they're staying with Jesus, yet they probably came to a point where they, they, they thought, you know, I didn't think it would cost me this much. And this is where some of you can relate. You know, we aren't thrown into prison. We aren't beaten with rods. We might endure some ridicule for our faith in Christ. But oftentimes in our journey, we come to that place where because of suffering or because of maybe hurt feelings or confusion or frustration, we, we just didn't think it would cost us this much. And so we question how committed we want to be to Christ, or we might even just start begin distancing ourselves, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. See, some of you began a journey with Christ because you thought the journey with Jesus was all about being happy. That, that if you had a relationship with Jesus, it, it, your life would be happy. And, and yes, there, there's joy to the Christian faith. But you know what? It, being in a relationship with Jesus isn't some, some magic formula that means that everything's going to be great. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Jesus talks about in this world you will have trouble. But you, you began thinking this was about, about a happy life. And you're encountering suffering and you may be thinking about taking a few steps back. Or maybe you came to Christ under the false pretenses that it meant no suffering, that God would protect you from all trouble and calamity. And as you've begun in your journey with Christ and you put some laps into the journey, you discover that there's quite a bit of suffering. Or maybe you're here this morning and as you hear me say, I hate quitters, something rises in you and you say, that's right, I, 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 I never, I'm never gonna give up on Jesus. I would never do that. You would sort of like Peter say, Jesus, if all else you know, depart from you, you can count on me, I'm your guy. And yet we know Peter just hours later denied 
that he ever knew Christ. You see, the reality is, is that whether you're at that place where you know that you're close to quitting, or maybe you're just at a place where you're just slowly sort of just taking a few steps back and unknowingly putting in your place of throwing in the towel, or whether you're here today saying, that would never happen to me. The reality is, is that we're all facing things, we all will face things, have faced circumstances that tempt us to distance ourselves from Christ. And we don't want to be quitters. And we want to finish well. And the writer of Hebrews has wrapped up the whole doctrinal section, ten and a half chapters, of why intellectually you should stay with Jesus. You stuck with it, you worked through those ten and a half chapters, but now we're at the point in the book where it gets intensely practical. Now we start talking about how do I stay with Jesus? What are, what are the disciplines that I can build into my life that will help me finish well? Hebrews 10, verses 19 through the end of the book is all about how to finish well. And it begins today as we wrap up chapter 10 with, some, with a lot of practical advice of finishing well. So if you've got your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10, I want to just read uh, idea by idea. So sometimes it might just be a verse here or there, or it might be a whole section. In, in, in answering this question of how can we stay with Jesus, how can we finish well? Well, Hebrews 10, verse 23, begins answering that question. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Just stop right there. There's the first concept, the first idea that he gives us. Ten and a half chapters of describing to us the hope we do have. We have a hope of rest. We have a hope in Christ. We, we know we've been forgiven. We have this, this hope knowing that, as we talked last week, that, that everything we need to be made perfect is, is in Christ who is in us. That he forever made perfect those who he's making holy. We talked about that last week. That the picture of Christ in you is complete. And right now you are simply on a journey of those pieces of the puzzle being, being put in place. You have that hope of one day that taking your last breath here on earth and your first breath in heaven, you will cross the finish line and you will hear the Savior, you'll see him face to face, you will hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. We have that hope. And what the writer is saying is, look, stay with Jesus, finish well. Here's, here's how, it be, how it begins. Keep a firm grip, keep a tight grip on the hope, the, the, the promises that he's given to us. We keep a tight grip on what's been promised. And, you know, the early church, one of the ways they did this was by making a list of promises and reciting them or making a list of what is truth, what is doctrine, combined with promises and reciting them as, as a church family. Uh, they, they came in the form of creeds. Hundreds of years into the life of the early church, you know, one of the, one of the creeds that they, they came up with was the, uh, was, was the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a more well-known creed, and let me just read it to you because it, this one's in more modern English, but this is something the church would have recited to remind them to, to, so that they might not lose their, their grip on what is true and what they hope for. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the worldwide church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That was something that they recited frequently to remind them of what was true, of who Jesus is and and what he has accomplished and what our future looks like. It was just one simple way of keeping a tight grip on hope and what's been promised. And that's simply a beginning place. We've spent ten and a half chapters talking about the intellectual side, the theological side of why we would stay with Jesus. Now we need to hang on tightly to that. And not, uh, not allow the winds of culture to erode what we know to be true about Christ and what we know to be true about our future. That's just the first place to begin. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse, verse 24 is the next one. It says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. There's the second idea to finishing well. First one is te- keeping a tight grip on what's been promised. The second one is invent ways to love and encourage one another. We invent ways to love and encourage one another. Here's what you need to understand. Staying with Jesus is not a solo journey. Let me say that again. Staying with Jesus is not a solo journey. Yes, you have personal responsibility in your following after Christ, but we also share responsibility with one another. We motivate one another with love and good works. We encourage one another. We invent ways to love and encourage each other. Now, many of you know the name Don Bubna. Some of you may not. Don was a lead pastor of St. Alliance Church for, for a lot of years. And Don, encouragement was a big deal to Don. Uh, he, he, this, was, uh, this was very important to him. Uh, love and encouragement were, were, were values for him. I remember as a young pastor hearing Don teach, he, was ta- he, was, uh, he, he had come to the church I was pastoring at, and he was talking about Barnabas, this guy in the book of Acts that was called the son of encouragement, which is a pretty cool nickname. If encouragement had children, Barnabas would be one of them. All right, son of encouragement. And Don was talking about encouragement and what it is. He threw this one word up on the wall, and it's just the word courage. Courage is strength. It's boldness. It's what we need to face the reality of our days. We, we have conversations that need courage. We have work situations in which we need courage. We find ourselves in situations where we want to share our faith, and that takes courage Yet the reality is, is that as, as we express courage, there are many things that happen to you and to me during the week that, that remove courage from us. They're, they are discouraging. To discourage is to take away courage. They come in the form of emails or, or phone conversations or, again, circumstances. It could be financial, relational, emotional. We, we all this past week had varying circumstances to different levels of which courage was drained from you. So you need it back, which means you need encouragement. We need to encourage what simply is putting courage back into you. So we need to invent ways to deposit courage into each other. Now, one of the practical ways that Don did this and taught this to us as a church was through encouragement cards. Encouragement cards are like in the pew racks in front of you. Just so you, they're not comment cards, okay? 
they're, they're, they're not suggestion cards. Just make sure you know. They're encouragement cards, okay? When you write an encouragement card to someone, it's for the purpose of this, of depositing courage in them, putting strength back in them. That, that's what it means to encourage. And the writer of Hebrews says, think of ways to do this. Think about it. And the reality is, is that you don't have to think to discourage it comes naturally. It takes little thinking to take courage away from somebody, but it takes great creativity and thinking to put it into somebody. And I just want to give you a homework assignment. Here we go. This week, Holy Week, think creatively of a way to deposit courage into someone. It, it, it may be someone who has a financial need. It may be someone that it would be a blessing to, to a person to say, you know what, I got dinner covered for you. It may be watching someone's kids. You know the people that you interact with. You know what would be a blessing to them. Think about it and, and encourage. Deposit courage into someone because we need courage to finish well. So the writer is saying, hey, no quitting. Keep a tight, tight grip on hope. And, and think of ways to motivate one another to love and good works. And then we get to the next verse, verse 25. Now you get the sense now, he's, he's just sort of firing all these chambers now of all these different ways to help us finish well. And we get to another idea in verse, in verse 25. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. What he's saying here is commit to community. You know, when I, when I travel uh, and visit our partners in the Middle East or, or international workers anywhere on our globe, do you know the one thing that they would give anything to be able to, to, to have whatever country they're in? The one thing that they would, especially in countries where it's, it's illegal to gather as, as, as Christians, the one thing that they would love to have that they miss the most is this. It's corporate worship. It's being in a room with, with other believers. And when they get the chance, when they come back for home assignment or we fly them back and they're with us for a weekend, when they're in this place where, where songs are being sung, they just weep. The tears flow. When prayers are being prayed, they weep. When, when the scriptures are open, they just weep because they find themselves in such a dry place. And they love the, the privilege of, of being together. Something that for, for many of us, we, we just take for granted because we get to do it week in and week out. Community, community can be a beautiful thing. You know, I, several years ago, I, I bought a, um, a little scooter 49cc Honda Metropolitan Scooter. It's not the most manly mode of transportation that you'll find. I heard an amen somewhere in the room. It's a little scooter. You kind of tuck yourself in behind it, but it gets 105 miles to the gallon. It's, uh, it, it's, it's nice when you fill that tank up versus in other cars. And uh, I did not know that when I purchased the scooter that it would come with a fringe benefit. It came with this fringe bend. I was riding down this road one day, and a motorcycle was coming the other direction. And as that other motorcycle came close, the rider in that motorcycle threw out his hands and did this. 
And I, I was like, what does that mean? I have no idea. And then it happened again. And it happened again as I'm riding my scooter. And then I, I just did it back. And, uh, <laughs> and then I, I realized that this is some secret handshake among those who ride scooters and motorcycles. There, there's this club, this community that you're a part of simply because you ride a motorized vehicle that has two wheels. It's a beautiful thing. You just flash the fingers and you know, it's like this, this brotherhood, this sisterhood uh, of, 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 of people who ride motorcycles. One time, I'm on Portland Road. I'm, I'm going to do a wedding. I'm in a full suit. I'm sitting on my little scooter at a, at a stoplight. <laughs> and um, I look over and at the intersection on the other side is this gang of motorcycle riders. They got all the leathers and you know, they look kind of scary and uh, they're sitting over there sort of just kind of revving the, the cycles up, making pretty cool noises. My, my little thing does not make any cool noises. And I'm sitting over there and I'm thinking, this is the brotherhood, I'm part of this. And so I, uh, I honk the horn on my scooter, meep, meep, and uh, flash the fingers, fingers over there, light turns green, and I start taking off. These guys all start busting up laughing at me as I'm headed down the road. <laughs> it is a beautiful thing to be accepted. <laughs> we need more places like that. And guess what? This is the place. This is a place for us where we should feel accepted. But you know, community is difficult. Sometimes it's, fi- it's hard to find. It's difficult to find, but when you find it, when you discover it, it's a powerful force in your journey with Christ. And you need it. I need it. And what happens is oftentimes we, we have these triggers for isolation. Our feelings get hurt. We, we didn't expect a Christian to treat us that way. And so we, we just take a step back from community. We just slowly kind of edge our way back. And we put ourselves in a precarious situation. We, we place ourselves in that situation where we can be easily picked off because we're doing life alone. And corporate worship is an important part of finishing well. I know that sounds like a very self-serving thing for a pastor to say. But I, I just want to tell you something. It's critical to your journey with Christ. That's why it's mentioned in this book. And I'm just gonna be blunt and honest. Some of you in this room need to raise the bar on your commitment level to corporate worship. And even now you may be thinking that, oh, it's not that big of a deal to miss. I'm not talking about missing now and then. I'm just just talking about consistency because it's critical to your journey with Christ. Parents in the room, you are discipling your, your children whether you realize it or not. And your commitment to community, I'm talking small group and big group, your commitment to community is is discipling your children. You're expressing to them the value of the local church. Again, it sounds very self-serving for a pastor to to say something like this, but I just want to be honest with you. Look, when Tree and I were raising our four kids, you pay a price to go to church. I wasn't always a pastor you're working all, 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 you know, you're busy during the week. And, and, and raising children is, is, is tough work. And then Sunday morning rolls along. It's, it'd be great to stay home and recoup. And there's a price to be paid to be here. And every time we made that decision, we were, we were 
Well, some days we, frankly, weren't glad we made the decision. It was a lot of work. Kids screaming at each other in the car and, you know, it's just, it's work. But when you, when you give yourself to it over years, now we look back and we're so grateful we did it. We're discipling our kids. Parents, you're discipling your kids. Yes, there is a price to pay. The writer of Hebrews is saying is that it's critical to us finishing well. And I'm just kind of honing in on kids here. But I'm not, parents with, with kids, I'm, all of us. There are a bunch of things that are, that are distractions for us that would keep us into minimizing the value of corporate worship. And it isn't just corporate worship, it's small group community as well because that's where the rubbing of the shoulders, that's where the iron is sharpening iron, that's where confession takes place. That's, that's where we do life together. And in the early church, when someone pulled themselves, extracted themselves from community, from, the, from meeting together, the early church called it abandonment. Because that's what it felt like. Look, when you're getting beaten in public squares and you're getting thrown in prison and having everything taken from you, and someone extracts himself from that community because the price is too high, it feels lonely. And finishing well comes with a commitment to community. We keep a tight grip on hope. We invent ways to love one another and we commit ourselves to community. And the next one uh, that he brings up is in the next verse, verse 26. And this is a larger section, so let me just read this for us. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord will judge his own people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What the writer of Hebrews is simply saying here is take sin seriously. You heard me say last week, two most common mistakes that Christ followers make is they do not take sin seriously enough and they do not take forgiveness seriously enough. What we're, what we're saying, when he's, when he's talking about trampling on the Son of God or insulting or disdaining the Holy Spirit or treating the blood of the covenant as, as, as unholy or common, what he's getting at is he's not saying, look, if you're struggling with sin, you're trampling on the Son of God. That's not what he's saying. The normal struggles of sanctification, of setting our lives apart for Christ, uh, the, 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 the moments when you say, why, why do I do the things that I know I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I know I should do, that, that, that journey of being conformed to the image of Christ is not what he's getting after here. What he's getting after is the attitude that says, I can do whatever I want because God will forgive me. That's what he's getting after here. Don't tell me what to do. I can do whatever uh, I want. One, as one uh, uh, poet said one day, it's God's job to forgive me. Well, that is taking something that's holy and if you remember our study in Leviticus, the sins of profanity and sacrilege are taking what's holy and treating it as common or taking something that's common and treating it as holy. That was the sin of the priesthood. They did that. And what the writer of Hebrews is getting after here is this attitude that says, I can do whatever I want. 
and in so insulting and disdaining the, the blood of the covenant, insulting Jesus, insulting the Holy Spirit, and treating the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, as commonplace. Take sin seriously. You are perfect and being made holy. Take that process seriously. Okay, last part. Last one. We find it uh, in verse, uh, verse 35. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patience, patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay, and my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. That's God's way of saying, I hate quitters. I take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. Finally, what he's saying here is keep your eye on the finish line. Think about the finish line. Meditate about the finish line. Think about that moment when you will cross into glory. Don't be distracted by all the stuff that's happening in the here and now. Hold firm to the end. Stick with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Stay with each other. And think about the finish line. There are two saints from St. Amelian's Church who this last week crossed the finish line. Al Kinney. Al Kinney went to be with Jesus. He crossed the finish line. Cindy Welty was here last weekend. After one of our services, we had a conversation. There was no even, no even consideration that this would be her last week. She crossed the finish line this last week. Went home to be with Jesus. But the reality is that when we cross that finish line, is that every one of us in this room wants to cross that finish line and hear our Savior say as he looks into our eyes, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't think there's a person in this room who wants to cross that finish line with their head hanging low. We finish well by thinking about that day, remembering and keeping that hope in our hearts. And we take sin seriously, and we don't neglect doing this, meeting together, because we know we need each other, and we invent ways to motivate and love one another. We keep a tight grip on hope for the purpose of finishing well. One last story. John, uh, John Stevens Aquari is a name that some of you may know uh, if you're a runner. Aquari was a marathon runner. He ran the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Aquari was running the marathon. He was halfway through the marathon. He was sort of, sort of dancing in and out of a crowd of runners, lost his balance, got tripped, fell to the pavement extremely hard, uh, bruised his shoulder uh, significantly, hit his knee on the, on the pavement of the street he was running on so hard that it dislocated his knee. He drug himself to the sidewalk to the pavement, put his knee back into place, addressed the wound, and dressed the wound on his shoulder and got back up and began hobbling his way in the marathon. People around him were trying to talk him into just, just giving up. You shouldn't be running. You've hurt yourself significantly, but, but Aquari kept running. He, he just limped. He hobbled. He hopped his way uh, for the, the last half of that marathon. Um, uh, the, 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 the marathon race was won by a guy from Ethiopia. He ran in two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, a quarry would eventually finish. It would take him three hours and 25 minutes, which is pretty astounding if you're a marathon runner, if you think about that. 
Three hours and 25 minutes later, he would cross the finish line. Yet when the marathon, it seemed like it was over, the stadium was, at, was wrapping up for the day, the crowds were leaving, and the word got out that there was still a runner out there in the streets of Mexico City somewhere. He was running in the dark. TV crews went out and they found where this runner was. They got cars behind him. They had headlights illuminating the path for him to keep running. At times, he would have to stop and limp his way forward. Uh, but eventually, time uh, passed by where he got a glimpse of the stadium, walked through that tunnel, and hobbled his way onto that track, only to have to run one more lap before he would finish the, lap, uh, finish the race. A quarry uh, hobbles his way around that track and the, the, the remaining crowd, the few thousand that are still there are on their feet and they're cheering for this runner as he's approaching the finish line. He crosses the finish line and a reporter is there as he's gasping, as he's gathering his breath and asks him the question and says, why in the world, after dislocating your knee and, and damaging your shoulder, did you not just stop and get some medical attention? Some of you know what a quarry said. Quarry responds by saying, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to begin a journey or to begin a race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish a race. Jesus Christ went to the cross not to get you to begin a journey with him. Jesus Christ went to the cross to get you to begin a journey with him and to finish well. May it be so in your life and mine.